I'm not going to ask any of you to come sit with me on the platform today. But uh, it was good to have a little time with the kids, and we'll try not to give any trick questions your way today. We will be looking at the Bible, and so I want to encourage you to open up a New Testament and find the book of Ephesians. Today we're launching into a whole new series of uh, services and talks and lessons that will go for 10 weeks that we're calling Building Blocks for a Christ-like Life. It helps if I have my little clicker with me. And um, we hope this is going to be a meaningful experience for you. There's an insert to your program that has a little lesson discussion guide. You'll want to hang on to that this week because uh, in your small group, your uh, small group will be discussing what we talked about today and taking it probably to a little deeper level or a little uh, more extensive level than what I'll get into. And that discussion guide uh, you'll want to make use of in your small group. You say, well, I don't have a small group, Scott. Well, then this is the perfect week for you to connect with a small group because everybody will be starting something together for the first time. And if you have any question about small groups that, uh, you know, like when do they meet and what might be a good fit for me and all that kind of stuff, just see me after the service and we'll chat for a couple of minutes and we'll get you hooked up uh, with a group that I think will be meaningful for you. So that's kind of what's happening over these next few weeks, and we think it's going to be a very important time for God to intersect with our lives and for us to know Him in a more full and deep kind of way as we get into these building blocks. And today we're talking about who is God. Who is God? And we'll be in Ephesians chapter 1 in just a minute. So when you think about the courtroom, and you've seen a lot of it, no doubt, on television, hopefully you haven't seen a lot of it up close and personal, uh, having been in a courtroom, but uh, there's, a, there's an issue at hand whenever uh, court is in session, and that is uh, the matter of burden of proof. There is no court in America where if you, how many of you have been on jury duty and you had to sit a trial and that kind of thing, some of you. So you know the judge did not tell you. You did not receive instructions that said you must reach a verdict that is beyond any shadow of doubt. That is not the burden of proof in our court system. In our court system, you must reach a decision, you must reach a verdict that's not beyond a reasonable doubt. We... In our system of uh, uh, the judicial uh, measuring out of what's fair and what's just, have said it's not reasonable to hold a standard of beyond any shadow of doubt. We want the highest level of probability in the decision made based upon that. We do that in all kinds of arenas, right? Some of you uh, dash out of here to go to SeaTac and catch a flight today to L.A. or to Dallas or Chicago. You do not have absolute certainty that that flight will take off, stay in the air, and land safely at your destination. You have a very high probability, such a high probability, you've been willing to take that risk over and over and over again to get on a plane. We uh, don't have any certainty about anything in life. We measure things by how high a level of probability and how uh, secure a risk we think that we could take on any given thing. And so it is, friends, with God. 
We cannot and will not prove beyond a shadow of doubt that God exists. That is an unreasonable burden of proof to put on the existence of God. However, we think there is very good evidence, evidence, evidence that is sufficient enough for you to say, beyond a reasonable doubt, I, I think God is, is real. I think He exists. And so let me just take you into a, a couple of the classic arguments about the existence of God, because where I really want to go today is talking about who He is. But I want us to not particularly assume that we're all on the same page about that. And certainly some that will listen to this later on the CD or on our Internet uh, may very well be wrestling with this issue. The first is what we would call the cosmological argument for God's existence. And don't get freaked out with the cosmological word because it's just a, a word that means reason for the world, reason for life. Uh, are there good, sufficient reasons for what we see in this world and, and uh, why things are as they are. That cosmological argument normally takes place in three categories. The first is what we would call sufficient reason. So the minute you look around and you see a bird or a squirrel or a tree or grass or flowers, the minute you see anything, it raises the question, why does that exist? What is the reason for its existence? Now, if there was nothing, nothingness does not demand a reason. But the minute there is something, then it begs the question, why does that exist? Which leads us in the second place to the, the principle of contingency. As we look around at all these things that exist, we find that none of them are independent, self-generating, self-sustaining, perpetual, and never-ending. They all have some level of dependence or even interdependence. They are all contingent on something or someone for their existence, and it's all temporary. We see everything go away eventually. The second law of thermodynamics says that we're all in a state of entropy and we're all diminishing and eventually we'll all be gone. If you don't believe that, just take a little peek at your high school yearbook and look in the mirror. And uh, that should be sufficient evidence beyond reasonable doubt. Now, in the third place, with respect to the cosmological argument, is the matter of responsibility. That is to say, I have, I have looked in on everything around me, and I see that things exist. I also observe that they seem to be contingent upon other things. Who's responsible? Now, if we back way, way, way up, and we, we back up out of the Milky Way, and we back up beyond all the galaxies, and we, we're able to get a perspective to look at the entire universe and, and just put the entire universe in a circle, all that is inside that circle is contingent. It's all related to everything else and somehow connected and dependent. It's all moving in some state of entropy and, and diminishment. Who's responsible? What's responsible? 
Does it make more sense to say that responsibility is found inside the circle of contingency or responsibility is found outside of the circle of contingency? Thousands, even millions of people have wrestled with these questions over thousands of years. And logically, overwhelmingly, people have concluded responsibility must be outside the circle of contingency. There must be some non-contingent, independent, self-sufficient, all-powerful, all-aware and all-knowing kind of thing, force, entity, gets real close to the definition of God, that is responsible for everything that's within that circle that's contingent. That is the cosmological argument for God's existence, that God must be that non-contingent, omnipresent, omniscient, all-powerful one that is responsible for everything that has been created. The second major classical argument for the existence of God has to do with uh, or what's referred to as the teleological argument. The teleological argument basically looks at all the intricacy of everything, all the symmetry of everything, all the complexity of everything, and basically concludes there simply cannot be such design without a designer. You know, the fact that you have a watch or you make use of a clock, something with that much intricacy, complexity, its design demands that there's a designer. In other words, it's an argument against a random collision of whatever that is able through, you know, whatever process and time evolve into everything that we know today. In fact, uh, people that care about those kinds of things and scientifically can, you know, assess have uh, arrived uh, at this notion that just for randomness to eventually evolve to the point that there would be one single protein molecule would take 10 to the 240th power. I didn't have enough room to draw that number for you to be able to even begin to comprehend that. And so uh, it's an argument against randomness. So those are the primary arguments for the existence of God. It still raises this question. If there is a God, and overwhelmingly most people in this country believe there is one, then who is he? What kind of God is God? Is he good? Is he kind? Is he benevolent? Is he harsh, cruel, punitive, judging? And how would one find out? Well, Christians believe that God has chosen to reveal and to disclose himself. In fact, friends, that's the way it works with every kind of person anywhere. If you're ever going to have a hope to get to know anyone, they must choose 
to open themselves, reveal themselves, disclose themselves so that you get to know them. And the Christian faith believes that God has done just that. And in the Christian writings in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 6, the text says, Whoever would draw near to God must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So this matter of wanting to get to know what kind of God is God and who is he? We believe he has said, come and see. Let me show you. And if you'll believe that much, he exists and he invites me to know him. Then he says, you'll be rewarded by getting to know him. You'll be rewarded by getting to experience him. You'll be rewarded by getting to have him involved in your life. So we believe that God has revealed, has disclosed himself, has invited us to get to know him. And as he has begun to show us who he is, he has said, he has revealed that he is a triune God. That means that he is one God in three persons. Now, this is one of the great mysteries of all time. One God, but in three persons. That is to say, the same essence, the same substance, oneness, but three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, I know it sounds like I'm talking to the kids right now with my trick math a few moments ago. Uh, but, but this is something that we really need to grasp because it has everything to do with how we get to know him and how we begin to experience him. Uh, a lot of people have reasoned that uh, this whole matter of the Trinity is just not that big of a deal. Uh, tell me, how do I go to heaven? But it is a big deal. And here's why understanding the Trinity is important. You can't really understand the Bible. Until you begin to understand the Trinity. You say, how can that be? Well, uh, it'll seem kind of crazy and, and contradictory if you begin to read through it for very long without some kind of notion of what the Trinity is all about. For instance, when you get into the New Testament and Jesus begins to talk about his being God. And then not too far from that kind of statement you'll see him refer to Father God. And I don't do anything without checking in with Father God. And we have oneness. The Father and I are one. So if you don't have some notion, some comprehension of what the Trinity is about, things like that in the Bible just won't make sense. And then there's the matter of God's person. Now, you think about any person. If you don't have a right understanding of that person, you won't have a right relationship with him or her. Just take your marriage, for example. 
if you don't have a right understanding of your spouse, your relationship with your spouse is going to be pretty crazy. If you don't have a, a profound understanding of your children, and if you have multiple children, you know they're all different. They're all unique. You can't just put them under one umbrella of understanding. You have to have unique and different understanding for each of them. If you don't, you'll be, have a problematic relationship with them. And so it is with God. You have to understand who he is and what he's like to have a proper relationship with him. And then in the third place, if you don't have some sense of what the Trinity is about, you won't understand redemption and salvation. Because each person of the Godhead plays a role in you being saved or made alive or redeemed. So these are just three hugely important reasons why you want to have some understanding about the triune nature of God, the Trinity. So here's where we get into the text. We're going to see some of the things that the Apostle Paul said to us about what we would refer to as the Godhead. And begin reading with me in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints or Christians in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Even in his salutation, he makes reference to the Godhead. Verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves in him. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Okay, any questions? One of the more theological passages in, in uh, the Bible, and certainly in the New Testament. And I want to encourage you to leave your Bible open because I'm going to just move right through those 14 verses and unpack some of that. And we'll do so by looking at the different persons of the Godhead. So to begin with, you see, Paul make reference to God the Father. Look at those first few verses, and you'll see that God the Father is the primary blesser. 
If you are a recipient of blessings, and if you are given a capacity to be a blessing to someone else, that is some of the activity of the Heavenly Father in us and around us. He's the primary blesser. We also see that he is the author of salvation. That is to say, before he ever did creation, before he brought about all that contingent stuff from his non-contingency, he had a plan that you would come into this world, that I would come into this world, that others of us would come into this world, and that we would be able to be saved from our fallen state through the process of trust and faith in Jesus Christ. None of that was accidental. None of that was an afterthought. Before creation, he considered all of that. He's the author of salvation. And he is the one who determines the motive for doing such things. Notice there are two motives that Paul lists in the text. One is that he does all of this because he loves us. Now, he loves us before we even existed. He loves us after we did exist, but we'd fallen into sin and we had separated ourselves from him in rebellion. Even while we were yet sinners, he loved us. So one of his motives, one of his motivations for pursuing us, redeeming us, saving us is because he loves us. The other motivation is for his own glory. He's done all that. So that he would be exalted. We've talked about that many times in here before. This is not because God is an egomaniac. This is not because God is so needy for everyone's adoration that he does all kinds of stuff to stir adoration. But rather, because God is the most important person in our lives, our greatest hope, our greatest fulfillment of all the potential that is about us, then he does us a favor. By exalting himself so that we can find him. So that in the midst of all of this deception and all the distraction of this world, oh, there's God. That's what God's like. And when he is exalted, when he is praised, when he is preeminent, lifted up, we get to be drawn to him. And so that's why he's motivated by his own glory in that sense, because it becomes a blessing to us. You see how the, all these things are interconnected. So he's the primary blesser, the author of salvation, and determines the motivations for these kinds of activities. Then Paul talks about God the Son. Move down to around uh, verse 6 and following. God the Son is the atoning sacrifice. It is by his shed blood... That he pays a price for our sin. Now, every wrong that's ever been committed in all time, someone pays for the wrong. Sometimes a victim pays for that wrong. Sometimes the victimizer comes around and gets confessional and owns up to it and pays for the wrong. In the, the case of our sins, our crimes against God, our treason, our rebellion against God, no one could pay for that price of our wrongness. It was too great a price, except God himself. 
And God himself, as God the Son, took the penalty of our sins upon himself and went through a sacrificial atoning death so that we could be forgiven and we could be reconciled unto God. And Paul says it's the same God the Son, Jesus, who reclaims and redeems all creation. In other words, humanity, which is like the height of God's creation, is so busted, so broken, we are so fallen, we've ruined all of creation. All that God had planned for creation got busted when we rebelled and fell in the Garden of Eden. But the person of Christ, the second member of the Godhead, so atones for that, he's able to reclaim all of creation. He's able to redeem all of creation as well as ourselves. That's what he is able to do. Now, that word redeem comes from this whole concept of slavery and the trading block, right? So in ancient days... When uh, slave traffic would take place, you would go down to the trading block and you would be able to uh, buy a slave. Now, if you had a slave that you were selling and uh, or that was being taken away from you, you could decide, you know, I'm, I'm not willing to let that happen. I'm going to redeem or buy back that person for myself. And that's what. Jesus has done for us and for all creation. It was all busted. It was all sent to a condemned trading block. The enemy of life, the enemy of our soul, the Satan, had rights to all of us and everything except for the fact that Jesus came and redeemed it and bought us back so that the Satan, the adversary, could not have us and rule over us. We could go on and on, but then Paul begins to talk about God the Spirit down in the last couple of verses of our text. And there we see that all, all that the Father and all that the Son are doing for us and in us and around us, the Holy Spirit seals that. Seals God's work. Now, what's the purpose of a seal? Well, in some instances, a seal is affixed to something to show it's authentic. Right? You go uh, to, to buy some food and it's been stamped and sealed by U.S. government. Having been inspected and passed all these, you know, criteria. So, on one hand, a seal is there to show authenticity. The, the spirit... Uh, shows us that we truly have been redeemed, reconciled, reclaimed. Uh, seals also showed ownership. So a king would affix his seal to something to show that he owned that. And uh, the Bible makes it clear that if you uh, trust in Christ and seek to know God and have a relationship with God and do life with God, that you are no longer your own. You belong to him. He owns you. 
You go, I don't want to be owned by anybody. I don't, I don't want anybody to run my life but me. Uh, impossibility. That's a whole other subject for another day. But the fact of the matter is, we are all always run by something or someone, owned by something or someone. And in this instance, we're encouraging you to choose that that be God rather than something else or someone else. So that's what seals do. They show authenticity. They show ownership. And we're also told that the, the Spirit guarantees God's work. God says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to atone you. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to rebuild you. I'm going to renew you. And the Holy Spirit seals us for that and guarantees that it will happen. He guarantees it by giving us a little down payment experience, gives us a little foretaste so that we, li- we literally, legitimately get to have a little taste of heaven here on earth before we exit this world and go into the next. But more than that, he guarantees it in the sense that we know that we know that we know. That God is real, that God loves us, and that we have a relationship with Him. That's the kind of work God the Spirit does in us. I thought it was interesting, uh, within the past couple of weeks, former religion editor for Time Magazine died. And so when uh, he passed, a lot of people talked about his work at Time Magazine. And one of the things that he had been responsible for, John Elson, uh, he had been responsible for the most famous Time issue in all history, and that's the 1966 edition, I forget the month, of time, where he posed the question, is God dead? And he has spent a year uh, consulting with theologians and philosophers and educators and and, uh, cultural experts, etc., and he had devoted this issue to the fact that humanity now, 1966, had reached such a level of sophistication, we really could come clean and own up to the fact that we, we don't have to have this God that we fabricate anymore. We don't have to have this God that can explain all the inexplicable, because now we're sophisticated enough, we're scientific enough to be able to make sense of all these things, and we don't have to have the God thing. And he built his case and had all these uh, experts testifying to that effect. And it was, a, it was a, a tremendous time of increase in secularization. The only thing wrong with his contention were the thousands and the millions of people that said, I don't care what you say. I know him. I have a relationship with him. So you can debunk all you want to debunk. You can talk about sophistication and education and scientific notions and all this kind of stuff. But I know him. I got a relationship with him. So much so that S.M. Lockridge famously said, Hey, I'm the next of kin. No one notified me God was dead. <laughs> That's what God the Spirit does in us. So, Michael Patton has helped us to kind of encapsulate some of this understanding of the triune God, the Trinity. In the diagram that I've placed on the screen for you, 
where we see that the Father is God. The Son is God. The the Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. One God in essence, in being, but three persons. Now, there's all kinds of heresies about this, and some of it I've been guilty of myself. For example, I've often tried to describe the Trinity by making reference to, well, consider a man who is at the same time a husband, a father, and a son. So one, one person, but he has these three different kinds of functions. Well, that really is a distortion of what the Trinity is about. In fact, that is in the category of what's called modalism, where you're trying to define God by what he does rather than by who he is. So uh, modalism basically says God shows himself in three different ways. And it's a skewing of what the Trinity is actually about. It's really, really difficult to get a precise definition of the Trinity. It's more easy to say what it's not. And it's not a matter of saying, here are the different functions or the different roles or the different hats that God wears. um, Because you're, you're talking about three persons, not three roles that one person does. Another kind of heresy is referred to as tritheism. And it's the notion where there are actually three gods that have a very similar nature, but not the same nature. But more popular of a heresy than that is an offshoot of that called subordinationalism. It's a a notion of tritheism, but it has a hierarchy to it. Which is to say, there's God the Father at the top. And then second in order is God the Son. And then third in that order is God the Holy Spirit. And they are three different persons. They have similar substance, uh, but they are not one. In fact, they are in an order like that. So all of these, I could give you many more, but that's the three primary heretical notions, skewings of the thoughts of the Trinity. And you go, please move on. Okay. so what? So what? What does it matter that we've just had all this conversation, that you'll be discussing it more in your group this week, about who is God and what are the reasons to believe in him and what's this Trinity thing anyway? So what? Well, friends, here's the fact of the matter. Most of us in this room are kind of on friendly terms with God. And we have a belief in God. And we're mostly pleased to gather on Sunday mornings, even on beautiful sunshine days like today, and worship God, esteem Him, say He's great. But most of us 
don't absolutely commit and order our lives around God. If I'm going to be an apprentice of God, if I'm going to strive to conform my entire life to His, then I must know who He is. I must know what He's like. Because who He is and what He's like is what will be happening to me. What will be being developed in me will be being formed in me. Now, let me hasten to say, it's not optional to say, I I want to kind of be on friendly terms with God, but I'm not sure I want to do that whole total, like, apprenticeship, life commitment thing. It's not optional. See, it's either I want to have the saving grace of God in my life, that redeems me and transforms me, and therefore I take on the Christ life, or I don't. And in the don't category, it can be everything from I don't believe in God to I totally believe in God, and I totally believe the gospel, I totally believe the Bible, but I'm not going to do all that and be all that and live all that. And so you've got to kind of figure out where, you know, where are you? Which side of that equation are you on? If I'm going to be an apprentice of God, I'm going to have His life working in me. Then I must know who He is and what He is like. For example, in Romans chapter 8, we're told that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not heights or depths, not life or death. Not anything can separate us from the love of God. What's the implication of that for you, for me? That we, if we begin to do life with Him and apprentice to Him and and have His life formed in us, we will become pervasively loving people. So that literally, we get to a place where nothing can shake Diminish, destroy our love for each other. That's what we're signing up for when we say I'm going to follow Christ and have the Christ life. That I'm going to be that kind of pervasive, loving, and everything that involves love with forgiveness and reconciliation and rebuilding and renewing relationships and on and on and on. That's who I'm going to be. Not a nice guy pervasively loving. Galatians 5 tells us with respect to God the Spirit that God the Spirit is joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. See, if I sign up to have relationship with God and do life with God and have God's life formed in me, that's who I'm going to become. That's not optional. That's what I've signed up for. And so it is unacceptable for me to continue to be impatient, 
joyless, unkind, lacking control. It's unacceptable. I will press on. I will trust. I will build my life around practices. I will engage the power of God. I'll do everything and whatever is necessary for that uh, spirit characteristic to come true in me. John 17. God the Son prays. Oh, that all of my followers, all those that I have redeemed, would be one with us and with one another. Just like I, the Son, am one with you, the Father, I pray for all my followers that they'll be one with us and one with one another. This oneness thing, there's some more math. One plus one equals one in that instance. This oneness thing, this sense of community. See, that's why it's important to understand and to know who the Trinity is and what it's like. Because somehow there are three persons in such unity, in such community, that they're one. And he says, that's exactly what I want you to have with me. And that's what I want you to have with everyone else. I want you to have oneness. I want you to have community. I want you to have koinonia, a fellowship. And we don't even begin to get the nuance of that until we begin to grasp the Trinity and what it's like for the Godhead to have that kind of communal relationship. That's so what? What do you do with that? What's your response? For God to choose to disclose himself, to reveal Himself to us is His invitation for us to know Him. That's the reason He reveals, is so that we might know Him. You accept God's invitation to know Him and do life with Him? Acknowledging that doing life with God will necessarily shape your life to be like His. We are so committed to this idea of knowing Him with intimacy and having community, community with Him and community with one another, uh, of taking on it. We're so committed to all of that. That we're giving these next ten weeks of this kind of focus, where along the way we're going to be introducing to you not only some teachings, but some practical practices that you can do that will keep your heart engaged, keep your heart aflame, keep your heart in the hand of God, keep you under the shaping of His work on you. So I hope, I pray, that you'll join us for this journey. Let's pray. So Lord, thank you for a little glimpse today, a little revelation into who you are and what you're like. 
as we launch into these weeks of apprenticeship, of discipleship, we pray for your blessing, for your favor, for your grace. We pray for your working as only you can work in us. And we pray in the name that is worthy, Jesus. Amen. Amen.